Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. In America, they want you and they track your every move. They're even putting poison in your food. In America, the people occupy to see the truth. But it's too late, and there's nothing we can do. In America, just watch your favorite show and watch the news. I love America. It's been my home all my life. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. In the fall of 1899, Sigmund Freud was preparing the publication of his masterpiece, The Interpretation of Dreams. Though the book would come out in November of that year, Dr. Freud requested that the title page be dated with the year 1900, for the book would belong, he said, to the new century. The new century seemed at first much like the old. In 1900, Queen Victoria still sat on the British throne, a throne she had held for 62 years. Gas lamps lit the thoroughfares of major cities, and the laws of Sir Isaac Newton still defined the universe. In the United States, Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and the rest of the Wild Bunch were robbing banks and trains in Colorado and Wyoming, while Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show gave command performances all over the world. In the summer of 1900, thousands of prospectors who had failed to strike it rich in California, Nevada, and Colorado raced to the Yukon in the latest gold rush. 35 years after the end of the Civil War, the letters G.A.R. for Grand Army of the Republic still carried great weight in American politics. President McKinley was a Civil War veteran, as were Presidents Harrison, Arthur, Garfield, Hayes, and Grant before him. The English language was much smaller in 1900. People had never heard of radios, movies, or crossword puzzles. There were no tractors, trucks, or tanks, no amplifiers, modulators, no electronics of any kind. There was no such thing as camouflage, no propaganda, no cafeterias or vaccinations. There were no chauffeurs, aviators, realtors, or hijackers. There was no income tax, no primaries, no referendums or recall votes, no city managers, no rotary or Kiwanis. 
people were neither Bolshevists, modernists, fascists, nor feminists. They didn't listen to jazz or gospel or bluegrass. They had never seen a neon light. They weren't schizophrenic or psychotic. They didn't have neuroses or complexes. They didn't wear polyester or synthetics of any kind, nor sunglasses, lipstick, or bras. No one used pesticides or fluoride. Like no other time before it, the history of the 20th century can be measured out in the sheer volume of words we had to invent to describe it. The United States in 1900 was a vast and disparate country. It would be impossible to describe an average American life. No such thing existed. Though 250,000 miles of railroad lines were slowly tying the country together, many Americans still lived hundreds of miles from the nearest rail line. In the northwest states of Oregon and Washington, rivers were still the highways of the land. In the western states of Wyoming, Montana, and the Dakotas, where there was neither river nor railroad, remote and isolated farming communities existed in conditions that would have amazed the city dwellers of the Northeast. On the banks of Niagara Falls, a great hydroelectric generator was being built that would turn nearby Buffalo into a city of lights. But west of the Mississippi and south of the Ohio, most Americans had never even seen a gas streetlight or indoor plumbing. Still, in the growing urban regions of the Northeast, the modern age was swinging into action. Millions of tons of steel poured out of mills in Ohio and Pennsylvania turning John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie into billionaires and turning cities into towering metropolises. The Chicago architect, Louis Sullivan, devised a structural technique using steel to construct buildings of unheard of height, 30 and 40 stories high. Sullivan, the father of the skyscraper, transformed the skylines of cities everywhere. Steel was also used to construct railroad tracks, streetcar tracks, and enormous bridges. During the century's first decade, New Yorkers saw the construction of the Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and East River bridges. In Cincinnati, construction was begun on a bridge that would span the Ohio River leading south to Kentucky. Mammoth engineering projects could be seen underground as well. Boston and Paris had subway systems at the turn of the century. Now, New York would have one as well. In 1904, the Broadway subway line opened, and a three-mile trip uptown that had previously taken up to an hour could now be traveled in 10 minutes. Meanwhile, Thomas Edison was providing the world with inventions that amazed the public. The electric light, the record player, the kinescope, the list of wonders went on and on. The modern age seemed to burst forth en masse from the front parlor of Edison's New Jersey home. In 1900, there were only 8,000 automobiles in the United States and less than 10 miles of paved roads. While tens of thousands would gather in Long Island early in the decade to watch the Vanderbilt Cup automobile races, cars were thought to be toys for the rich. Henry Ford would help to change that notion when in 1908 he introduced mass production, which created more jobs and cheaper cars. Ford wanted to make the automobile affordable to the average working man, 
The idea made him a millionaire. By decade's end, there were over 200,000 cars in the country, and well over half were Fords. For most of the country, however, the modern age seemed far away. In the South, the economy was still recovering from the Civil War. There was virtually no industry in the Deep South, and construction, even of private homes, lagged far behind the rest of the country. In 1900, nine out of every 10 African-Americans still lived in the South, and 80% of them worked as sharecroppers. Sharecropping was a lazy descent into hell, as one historian put it. Uh, African-Americans found themselves in economic relations which, which differed in many ways very little from their experiences as slaves. Southern sharecroppers, both black and white, rented land, seeds, equipment, homes, and sustenance from local landowners. By law, these landowners could keep their books secretly, so the tenants were never allowed to see the status of their own accounts, nor question the prices they were given for their crops. For sharecroppers, each year's crop invariably fell just short of breaking even. In the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson case, the Supreme Court ruled that separate facilities for black and white Americans did not violate the Constitution, so long as the facilities were of equal quality. The so-called separate but equal precedent. Whites only signs appeared in restaurants, hotels, and bathrooms. In the South, white politicians enacted brutal legislation known as Jim Crow laws. These laws legally established a segregated society and informally turned a blind eye to white violence, particularly lynchings against African Americans. In the United States, you had a situation in the 1890s where over 200 African Americans were being lynched every year in the Deep South, where African Americans who had, at least for black men, had won the right to vote, lost it in the 1890s and the turn of the century with the imposition of new white supremacy state constitutions throughout the region. You had the imposition of racial segregation in public accommodations so that states and city councils passed laws, ridiculous uh, restrictions on interaction between blacks and whites. Uh, the city of Birmingham, Alabama passed a local ordinance making it illegal for blacks and whites to play checkers together. Jim Crow, as many people know, was a minstrel character. And minstrelly, minstrelsy was very, very popular, going all the way back to the Jacksonian era. Uh, whites liked to dress up as blacks, and they liked to uh, portray an African-American character who was simple and comedic and childlike. Racial segregation was always a form of white control, a form of reminder that whites had the power to exclude or deny. And therefore, Jim Crow, this minstrel character, this caricature of African-Americans seemed appropriate as an image to characterize this system of racial domination. To protect themselves from Jim Crow society, African-Americans began a slow migration out of the Deep South and formed all black townships in Florida, Missouri, and Arkansas, and on up the Mississippi. Throughout the decade, black leaders started organizations aimed at improving African Americans' economic and social standings. Booker T. Washington 
president of the new Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, started the Urban League. In 1907, the writer and scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, a former student of Booker T. Washington, founded the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Over the course of the century, the NAACP emerged as one of the nation's most powerful voices of racial justice. Economically, at least, white farmers and workers throughout the Great Plains of the Midwest fared little better. William Jennings Bryan, the Nebraska Democrat who had unsuccessfully run for president in 1896 and 1900, championed the cause of the American farmer, whom he called work-worn and dust-begrimed. Like the southern sharecroppers, miners and laborers in company towns across the country were economically trapped. Miners rented their homes and bought food and equipment from the company. After working brutal 12 to 16 hour shifts six days a week, they often found they still owed their employers money. As the nation industrialized, the lives of most Americans worsened. Workers had virtually no power and no voice in American industry. Congress and presidents followed a strict laissez-faire or free market philosophy, standing squarely behind the interests of business and against workers. Wages were bad and working conditions were dangerous. In many industries, unions were illegal. Union organizers were treated as virtual criminals. During the century's first decade, labor unrest broke out across the country. There were coal miner strikes in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania in 1900 and 1902. In 1903, miners in Cripple Creek, Colorado, and Morenzi, Arizona struck. Machinists went on strike in 1901, the New York building tradesmen in 1903, and the amalgamated meat cutters in 1904. Chicago Teamsters went on strike against Montgomery Ward in 1905. The Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers carried on a running battle with owners throughout the decade, and bridge workers, who lived an especially dangerous and migratory life, waged a long and sometimes violent struggle against the National Erectors Association from 1902 to 1910. Most of these strikes were popular to an American public that resented the unbridled power of the capitalists and robber barons. The late 19th century had seen a series of depressions that brought unemployment, poverty, and dislocation to hundreds of thousands of Americans. Although President William McKinley's first administration saw a return to prosperity, civil unrest continued to grow. McKinley won the 1900 presidential election, but the performance of socialist candidate Eugene Debs, who finished a strong third in the election, came as a surprise to capitalists and political leaders. The socialists uh, elected mayors in some 50, 60 cities. They had um, hundreds, literally hundreds of publications all over the country. Um, the labor movement itself was quite active. Especially surprising was the Socialist Party's popularity amongst farmers throughout the Plain States, who were notorious for their staunch conservatism. The Socialist Party was... Uh, when you think about it, it's kind of mind-blowing. They had 5,000 uh, locals throughout the country. 
Um, they had about 120,000 members at their high point, uh, but they had a press that uh, one weekly, for example, The Appeal to Reason, had 760,000 subscribers. It was published in uh, Girard, Kansas, a town of 3,000 people. Adding to the tensions of the era was the dramatic increase and changing nature of immigration. From 1882 to 1910, the U.S. underwent the greatest wave of immigration it had ever seen. At its peak in 1907, 1 1.3 million foreigners arrived through the gates of Ellis Island in New York Harbor. For the decade, more new Americans came through immigration than through childbirth. In 1900, almost nine out of every 10 Americans were Caucasian, and most Americans considered themselves native white stock. The majority were descended from British settlers. The new wave of immigrants were mostly from the Mediterranean and Slavic regions of Eastern Europe. Although they came from Europe, they were not considered to be part of the white race. They spoke no English. Almost entirely Catholics and Jews, they came into an America dominated by a stringent Protestantism. Unlike previous generations of immigrants, these newcomers didn't head out for the territories to claim farmland, even though they were mostly farmers. Instead, they concentrated in city centers and industrial capitals. A large percentage of them stayed in the dense Lower East Side of New York City, whose population was exploding. Once they got here, what they found often was that they were segregated into different ethnic ghettos, for example, in Chicago and Detroit and in New York and Philadelphia and other places, around the factories in which they worked. And there was uh, not much chance of them to break out of these ghettos uh, unless they were willing to divorce themselves from their culture and try to blend in with the larger American society. But that usually took about two generations to be able to do that. For the most part, people were relegated to a certain role here and they played that role. Americans were suspicious of the newcomers and their loyalty to their new country was constantly in question. In addition, epidemics such as smallpox and influenza increasingly plagued the growing cities and many blame what they called the dirty immigrants for the spread of disease. Despite these troubles, America considered itself a nation on the move. In 1901, a great international exposition was held in Buffalo, New York to showcase the nation's potential. The dramatic and innovative use of electricity dazzled visitors, turning night into day. Exhibitions demonstrated the latest developments in agriculture, forestry, engineering, and transportation. On September 5th, President McKinley came to the exposition, and a special reception for the president and his wife drew 50,000 spectators to the Temple of Music. At his speech that day, McKinley spoke of the success of his open-door policy, which he believed would stabilize the country's economy and lead us to a glorious new age. The time had come, McKinley proclaimed, when isolation is no longer possible or even desirable. One of the things that had been a common factor throughout the 19th century for the United States economy was these constant boom and bust cycles, and the, 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 the most severe being in the 1890s. 
So with with the progression of industrialization, these boom and bust cycles uh, proved to be very problematic because these cycles often caused uh, serious social dislocations uh, and problems in the United States. And so the open door policy fundamentally uh, proposed that all nations of the world uh, drop all tariffs and open their doors to each other for the sale of raw materials as well as investment. But even as he spoke, McKinley's open-door policy was being tested in the Philippines. During the Spanish-American War in 1898, U.S. forces had fought alongside Filipino guerrillas to liberate the islands from the Spanish. With the old tyrants now gone, the U.S. became the new invader, and Philippine rebels fought on, this time against the Americans. On the one hand, the United States, with its open-door policy, argued against the imperial policies of its European competitors, in that sense looking like an anti-imperialist power itself. But on the other hand, at the same time, by pushing the open-door policy, the United States is doing the same thing that its competitors were doing, and that is pushing their own economic and cultural values on other peoples. The fighting in the Philippines was savage. The Philippine insurrection cost many more lives than the Spanish-American War. 4,000 Americans and more than 16,000 Filipinos died in battle. Another 100,000 Filipinos died of famine caused by the burning of crops. Though the insurrection essentially ended in 1902, fighting would continue for three more years. In the end, it wasn't military superiority that suppressed the Philippine rebels but the relatively liberal policies of the new Philippine governor, William Howard Taft. He gave Philippine citizens the right to vote and elect their own officials, enfranchising them to run their own country. In doing so, he was able to undermine the revolutionary fervor that guns had been unable to suppress. President McKinley, who had overseen the start of the Philippine War, would not live to see its conclusion. The day after his President's Day speech at the Buffalo Exposition, the president was shot. The assassin was an anarchist named Leon Zolgaz. Doctors were unable to remove the bullet, but announced their confidence that the president would recover. A week later, McKinley died. Within eight weeks, Zolgaz would be tried, convicted, and executed. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Public, Public XX America. America. Let us know how you found us by tweeting us at Public, Public XSSI on Twitter. And please visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are achieving goals and making new standards in history every day. Public Access America. Hey, Petey! What the hell was that? I think that was the big boss. Or German spies! The new president was 45-year-old Theodore Roosevelt, the youngest president in American history. Child of privilege, hero of the Battle of San Juan Hill and the Spanish-American War, enthusiastic outdoorsman, one-time police commissioner of New York City and former governor of New York State, Roosevelt was not popular amongst the political bosses. In New York, Roosevelt had earned a reputation as the avowed enemy of political corruption 
and leaders of New York's political machine had pushed for his nomination to get him out of their state. Now, as New York Senator Mark Hanna put it, that damned cowboy is president. Roosevelt claimed he would continue McKinley's economic policies for peace and prosperity, but his actions worried many capitalists. Only months after Roosevelt assumed the presidency, 50,000 coal miners walked out demanding better pay, shorter hours, and recognition as a union. In an unprecedented move, Roosevelt threatened to send the U.S. Army in to run the mines until the dispute was settled. The owners were forced into labor arbitration before a presidential commission, and the workers won a 10% pay increase. A staunch conservationist, Roosevelt also earned the enmity of the logging industry. Spurred on by his good friend John Muir, he more than doubled the number of national parks during his administration. Theodore Roosevelt was passionate about conserving America's beautiful natural resources. He established 51 national bird sanctuaries, four national game parks, uh, 16 national monuments, and those monuments included the Grand Canyon, Myrrh Woods in California, Devil's Tower, and Petrified Forest. Uh, he also added 40 million acres to the national forest. And I think it's um, very key to know why he did this. He did it for the generations that were unborn, uh, people that were going to come long after even you and I are here. Roosevelt was blunt and straightforward. Speak softly, he said, and carry a big stick. Unlike past presidents who had allowed the robber barons and big trusts to operate as they saw fit, Roosevelt spoke passionately of what he called the public interest. As Roosevelt saw it, the president's job was to use any and all power at his disposal to protect this interest. Despite an almost universal dislike by political and business leaders, Roosevelt won re-election in 1904 by a landslide and was encouraged by many to run for a third term in office. He didn't like the name Teddy, but that's what the public called it, and they bought new teddy bears by the millions to demonstrate their ardor for their president. It wasn't just Roosevelt's policies that the public enjoyed. It was his youth and vigor. The president had six children who enlivened the White House and were the delight of many Americans. The marriage of his daughter Alice was an occasion of national celebration. The ethics of Roosevelt's actions were sometimes questionable, especially when it came to Latin America. An attempt by France to join the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans through Panama failed due to malaria and bankruptcy. Roosevelt thought the United States could do the job. The president of Colombia didn't agree, however, and Panama belonged to Colombia. Roosevelt sent troops to Panama to liberate the region from Colombia, and then promptly claimed the canal zone for the United States. I took the canal, Roosevelt claimed, and let Congress debate. Roosevelt's intention was to make the United States a world power on the same level as the great European empires. South America and Asia would be the dominions of the United States. I wish to see the United States the dominant power on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, he said. In 1907, Roosevelt sent a group of battleships known as the Great White Fleet around the world as a show of strength. During his years in the White House, the Navy doubled in size and became second only to Great Britain in the number of ships and men. Roosevelt's politics were called progressive. 
allowing the business trust's unlimited power provoked civil unrest, Roosevelt felt, and drove Americans to radical solutions like Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party. He believed, he said, in giving all Americans capital and labor a square deal. And he wasn't alone. Under the Roosevelt administration, the progressive coalition thrived. This was the era of the so-called muckrakers. Industrial progress had brought with it a host of social evils. Social surveys of the era documented links between rapid industrialization and such ills as poverty, alcoholism, syphilis, tuberculosis, suicide, and what were called emotional pathologies. Wealthy industrialists seemed to thrive on the misery of the masses. The muckrakers believed that exposure could lead to reform. Theodore Roosevelt coined the term muckrakers, and when he did so, um, as many of the phrases that he coined in American politics, it was not exactly a compliment. Um, he thought that they had their purpose, but that sometimes they overstretched their boundaries, and their influence on the system was not as great as it could be because they tended to be too negative. So um, he valued the role of the press, but he felt sometimes they overstretched. They did today what we would call investigative reporting. They, they, they studied issues for a long time and came up with, with uh, massive exposés. And no doubt, I think in a, in a general way, you can say the muckrakers certainly were a catalyst to the reform impulse that reformed many avenues in American society and culture at that time. Ray Standard Baker exposed corruption in the mines and railroads. The journalist Lincoln Steffens wrote a book on urban conditions called The Shame of the Cities. Looking into slum conditions, many cities took notice. New York City passed a housing inspection law early in the decade, and many other eastern cities soon followed suit. One of the most famous muckrakers was novelist Upton Sinclair. His book, The Jungle, exposed the unsanitary practices of the Chicago meatpacking industry, which packaged rotting meat and garbage into its products. When health officials confirmed Sinclair's claim, the public was outraged. I aimed at the public's heart, Sinclair said, and by accident, I hit it in the stomach. Health officials also turned their attention to the patent medicines and drugs that claimed to cure every ailment, a $60 million industry in 1900. Analysis revealed that many contained poison, most contained alcohol. Another major concern of muckrakers and progressives was the conditions of laborers, particularly children. In 1900, one quarter of all boys aged 12 to 16 were laborers, most working 12-hour shifts under wretched conditions. Progressives worked to pass child labor laws and spoke out against the rich who earned their millions on the sweat and blood of children. Unsafe labor practices were another target of concern. The Industrial Revolution produced machinery that maimed and killed workers who were then cast aside. As an alternative to the heartless ways of modern society, the era also saw the formation of utopian societies and settlement houses. These altruistic havens functioned as communes, as sources of information and adjustment for confused immigrants. 
and as a refuge for alternative lifestyles. One of the most famous was Hull House in Chicago. Founded by the social reformer Jane Addams, who would win a Nobel Peace Prize for her social activism. Adams wasn't the only woman challenging the traditionally masculine society during this time. The great heroine of miners and laborers around the country was the 70-year-old agitator Mother Jones, whom Teddy Roosevelt once called the most dangerous woman in the country. Others might have nominated Carrie Nation for that honor. She was convinced that a direct link lay between alcoholism and domestic abuse. She waged a long war against the evils of alcohol, often going into saloons with an axe and chopping the bars into pieces. The work of Nation and others like her would ultimately lead to both prohibition and women's right to vote. It was an era of change and uncertainty and of can-do optimism. Science, medicine, and technology were advancing at an unbelievable rate with new discoveries coming one after another. In 1900, the Kodak Brownie brought photography to the masses by making cameras cheap and simple. In 1901, the Italian physicist Guglielmo Marconi sent the first radio signal from England to Newfoundland. At the time, it was a breakthrough with little practical applicability. But within five years, a flurry of discoveries made the radio possible. In 1904, experiments in upstate New York had begun on electric railroad trains, though steam engines would continue to pull trains for another half century. But already, electric streetcars were showing up in every major city. It wasn't electronics, but mechanics that allowed man to take to the sky. In 1903, Orville and Wilbur Wright, bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, were ready to experiment with a flying machine made of bicycle parts, stretched muslin, and a gasoline engine. Orville Wright was at the controls on December 17th when the airplane lifted off the ground at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. He flew the plane for 12 and a half seconds. The events of that momentous day made few headlines. Only three American papers carried the story. But the Wright brothers had flown into history. In Switzerland, in a matter of months, an obscure postal worker named Albert Einstein produced three mathematical formulas that shocked the scientific world. Einstein's formulas established an equation to calculate the size of atoms, posed his famous special theory of relativity, and effectively ended the reign of Sir Isaac Newton's concept of the universe. Taken together, they established quantum theory as a real science, leading to most of the century's scientific breakthroughs. The one science that seemed to lag behind was medicine, and the consequences were becoming dire. As more and more people moved to urban industrial centers, disease and epidemics were ravaging the population. In 1900, doctors had no real understanding of how diseases like cholera, diphtheria, and yellow fever were contracted and spread. Smallpox epidemics became a recurring nightmare in big cities like New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. 
help in solving some of these diseases would come from an unlikely source, the construction of the Panama Canal. Previous attempts to forge a passage through Panama had largely been defeated by the 50 miles of swampland rife with malaria and yellow fever. Learning that British scientists had successfully eliminated mosquitoes on the Nile using drainage systems, American engineers spent nearly two years digging drainage ditches throughout the canal zone, nearly 500 miles of ditches in all. By the time the project was completed, the canal zone had a better health record than New York City or Washington, D.C. But the use of drainage ditches would soon be felt in these and other American cities, as sewage and sanitation systems were built to fight against the spread of disease. During the century's first decade, the rush and blur of the modern age excited most people. The century ahead seemed full of promises and hope. Electric lights were turning cities into wondrous playgrounds. Boxing, baseball, horse racing, and other sporting spectacles were drawing larger and larger crowds. Teams searched for larger venues to play in, and new stadiums like the Polo Grounds in New York and Scheib Park in Philadelphia were built to satisfy the public's hunger for baseball. The first World Series was played in 1903, with the Boston Red Sox defeating the Pittsburgh Pirates five games to three. The year before, Pasadena, California hosted the first Rose Bowl, and college football attracted the nation's attention. Entertainment was becoming a booming business. New York had become the center for American high society. The 400, they were called, because Mrs. Astor's ballroom only held 400 people. Families such as the Vanderbilts felt that New York had evolved into a world-class center for culture. To prove it, they enticed the renowned Italian opera singer Enrico Caruso to America to perform Rigoletto at the Metropolitan Opera House in 1903. While the 400 summered in Newport, Rhode Island and wintered in Palm Beach, Florida, the less moneyed on the eastern seaboard spent their leisure time at the beaches and boardwalks of the Jersey Shore. Thousands took trains to Atlantic City on summertime weekends to splash in the warm ocean waves. A popular new feature at the boardwalks were color-tinted picture postcards that visitors could send to friends or relatives back home to provoke good-natured envy. In New York City, Coney Island had turned into a gigantic amusement park, featuring over a million electric bulbs lighting the night sky. Luna Park, Steeplechase Park, and Dreamland boasted arcades, water sports, carousels, and slides to amuse the masses, all for 10 cents a ride. The parks included vaudeville tents, jugglers, wrestlers, contortionists, animal acts, boxing matches, and bodybuilding champions producing shows of strength. There were violin playing monkeys, water skiing elephants, and performing bears, sideshow freaks, and boxing horses. Amusement parks and arcades were opening all over the country, though few could compete with the grandeur of Coney Island. In regions too sparse for amusement parks, traveling arcades and circuses brought their fun to the countryside. In the western United States, where the cowboys still roamed, rodeos were the spectacle of choice. 
Part Buffalo Bill Wild West show and part cowboy skill and daring do, rodeos kept the tradition of the Old West alive in the new century. The decade also saw a new interest in providing recreation for children. Playgrounds and parks appeared in the inner cities, providing children with a wholesome environment in which to play. Books, aimed specifically at children, grew in popularity. During this decade, L. Frank Baum wrote his novels on Dorothy's adventures in Oz. In England, Helen Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit and Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Books were published. The biggest new attraction, however, was the Nickelodeon. Moving pictures were called flicks because of the flickering image, and the houses where they were seen were called Nickelodeons after their five-cent admission. Movies entranced the masses. People watched vaudeville acts, news items, pictures of the Roosevelts, or daily life on a city street. Moving pictures of cities in India and Asia were a big hit, as were sporting events. At Coney Island, a film on the execution of a circus elephant gone wild was one of the most popular attractions. Film in the 20th century seemed to be made for each other. Not only because film is invented just a few years before the turn of the century, but also because 20th century is the century of technology in many ways. And film is, of course, the art form, at least the first art form, that is most involved in, in technology. And uh, film is the first art form that is widely successful, that is aimed at everybody, uh, because it's expensive, because it's technological. It has to have an enormous audience. And in that way, both as the mass art form and as the technological art form, uh, film is, is most certainly the art of the 20th century. Vaudeville and live theaters couldn't compete with the dazzling optical tricks and special effects of this new medium. In 1902, effects pioneer and former magician George Melier wowed audiences with the film classic A Trip to the Moon. The fantastic story involving Victorian astronauts landing on the moon used many innovative camera tricks such as slow motion, fade-outs, and dissolves. The programs were short, they were about half an hour long. Uh, they didn't have to get dressed up. And so this became a movement that just transformed everything. In 1903, Edwin S. Porter devised an innovative use of film editing to tell a dramatic story. The result was the eight-minute feature the Great Train Robbery. Based on an infamous robbery committed by Butch Cassidy in the Wild Bunch only two years earlier, The Great Train Robbery became a box office sensation and paved the way for modern movies. Well, the Great Train Robbery was made by the Edison Studio, and it's significant in a lot of ways. It was enormously popular. I mean, in fact, uh, in an era in which uh, films probably were designed to be shown for about six months, uh, we have evidence that it was still being shown in, in 1908. Uh, it was very popular because it was one of the first films to really tell a coherent story, and also one of the first films to make action at the very center of, uh, of its storytelling. The middle class and the kind of uh, guardians of culture became rather disturbed and thought, what is this kind of working class entertainment that's grown up without us giving it uh, you know, our approval or our guidance? Uh, the possibility of a whole other culture in America that was no longer under the control or um, the um, sponsorship of the traditional guardians of culture worried people very much. And in fact, in 1908, the mayor of uh, New York City demanded that all Nickelodeons be closed as a menace to uh, public safety and health. 
The Nickelodeons weren't the only concern of the guardians of culture. In St. Louis, a piano maker named G.H. Stark used the mass publication of sheet music as an incentive for the public to buy his pianos. In the fall of 1899, he published a new composition by Scott Joplin called The Maple Leaf Rag. Cultural critics complained that ragtime music was dangerous and degraded American society. A Saturday Evening Post article warned of a plague of coon songs, skirt dances, and all the rest of the tawdry crew. But the popularity of the new music grew, and like the movies, technology made popularity profitable. Phonograph records were sold for the first time in 1901, and ragtime and jazz music soon dominated record sales. The debate over the social evils of popular culture would continue on through the century. Many critics warned of mixing what they called high and low cultural forms. But for W.E.B. Du Bois, the issue was quite different. It isn't the mix of high and low that scares these people, he wrote, but the mix of black and white. In 1904, Du Bois wrote, the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Du Bois said that at a moment in history, at the end of the 19th century, where the status of people of African descent throughout the world was defined by two fundamental political, economic, social institutions or systems. In the United States, Jim Crow segregation defined the oppressed existence of black people. Outside of the United States, it was European colonialism. The two systems of economic, political, and racial domination had many parallels. Around the world, violence was flaring up at the color line, as it had in the Philippines. In 1900, a popular rebellion in China had broken out against foreign domination. The Boxer Rebellion was quickly and brutally suppressed by an alliance of European nations. But colonies were beginning to show more willingness to revolt against their imperialist overlords. The world had been broken up into spheres of influence. There was the, the British Empire, the French had their sphere of influence throughout North Africa and Southeast Asia. Uh, the Germans had begun to carve up parts of Africa as well as uh, the Italians coming in. As a matter of fact, by 1914, about 85% of the globe's surface was under the control of some European power. In 1904, Japan provoked Russia into a war by annexing Korea and taking control of much of Manchuria. Russia was beaten badly in the three-year Russo-Japanese War. All of Europe was shocked by the defeat of a white nation at the hands of one of the so-called mud races. Back in America, Du Bois wrote, the word white has overnight lost its magic. For Russian Tsar Nicholas II, the embarrassment of losing a war to Japan wasn't the only concern. The climate was already revolutionary in, uh, in the Russian cities and in the Russian countryside as well, uh, with the whole thing being triggered into uh, open rebellion by the uh, Russo-Japanese War and the Russians' defeats at the hands of the Japanese in the Far East. The war effort had caused a severe downturn in the Russian economy, and millions had been thrown out of work. With winter approaching, Russians were cold, hungry, and angry. On a Sunday night in October 1905, 
a group of several thousand approached the gates of the Imperial Palace. The palace guard opened fire on them. Bloody Sunday, as it was called, sparked a widespread revolt. The revolution was so spontaneous and so short-lived that Vladimir Lenin, leader of the radical Bolsheviks, wasn't even in the country to see it. Hearing about the events in Geneva, Lenin rushed back to Moscow just in time to see order restored to Russia. He was immediately arrested for treason and exiled to Siberia. Then the Tsarist uh, uh, government of Nicholas II uh, felt it was forced to make concessions, had been an absolute monarchy, and they agreed to grant a constitution, although it turned out to be a very uh, limited, not to say phony constitution, but it was enough to split the liberals and the radicals in the revolution and uh, to restore order for the time being. Nicholas's announcement of a Russian constitution quelled the uprising, but the scent of revolution remained in the air. In England, too, signs of the decay of the British Empire were evident. Though few could yet believe it, the empires had seen their heyday. In 1901, when Queen Victoria died, the British poet Rupert Brooks wrote, it seemed as though the keystone had fallen from the arch of heaven. Even London prostitutes wore black for the Queen's funeral. Subscribe to Public Access America on iTunes. Rate and review us. Give us five stars or be forced out of the pages of history. Like history That's a good one. History forever will never know who you were. Who you were. Public Access America on iTunes. Rate and review us. Give us five stars or face your eminent doom. doom. Wow, Petey, where's your phone? Here, why? Because I think I better listen to Public Access America right now. I'm scared. They scare me, Petey. German spies? A new breed of political activists could be heard in London. Female suffragettes like Emmeline Golden Pankhurst staged protests and agitated for women's right to vote. In a show of civil disobedience, Pankhurst would be arrested nearly a dozen times. Like their contemporaries in the United States, the British suffragettes displayed a scandalously non-Victorian attitude towards sex. They advocated women's use of birth control and practiced, it was whispered, open marriages and other outrages of natural law. At the same time, the Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw, along with friends Sidney and Beatrice Webb, organized a society of socialist activists called the Fabians. The Fabians were dedicated to the reform of British society, and their platform would ultimately be adopted by the British Labour Party. One of Shaw's favorite and most shocking themes was the evils of the empire. Signs of the empire's demise came even before the death of Victoria. On January 1st, 1901, England granted the former penal colony of Australia its independence. The British were less willing to allow self-determination for the African provinces of Transvaal and the Orange Free State. 
those regions had been settled by Dutch colonists known as Boers, the Dutch word for farmer. Rich in gold and diamonds, the Boer territories were contested in 1880 by the British, but they were defeated militarily by the Boers. In October 1899, war broke out in the region again. Provoked by Great Britain, the Boers went on the offensive and scored several early successes. But the British changed their tactics, sent in heavy reinforcements, burned crops, and put Boer women and children into concentration camps. In 1902, the Boers finally capitulated. But the war had cost the British nearly 6,000 lives and much of its international reputation. England, which had historically not wanted to commit itself to permanent uh, alliances on the continent, had to reassess its, uh, its position in European affairs, and did so largely as a result uh, of the unfavorable, uh, the negative opinion uh, uh, regarding England's conduct during the Boer War. As with William Howard Taft in the Philippines, England was finally able to end the war only through compromise. Boers and British both became full citizens of the new Union of South Africa. Of course, neither citizenship nor any other rights in the new country were extended to the African natives of the region. Still, even this amount of flexibility was unusual in the politics of imperialism. To you, to you, I believe that it's just a bunch of piles of books and videos and just, well, it is it stuff that really doesn't matter anymore. The history's gone. Why, why bother bringing it back? Well, we're moving forward. Isn't that what we should be doing as a, a race, as a society, as a well, of government? Co of course, of course. We're, we're here to learn. We're here to grow. But some people went through some very hard things so that we could learn the lessons from them. And that's in history. Bringing history back. Every time you watch one of these episodes or listen to one of these episodes, you're going to learn something new, something that somebody struggled to achieve. We didn't get where we are now just suddenly by being born. We got here from the backs of civil rights leaders, from great presidents, from world leaders. That's how we got where we are. Well, it was wonderful having you on the show. Everybody, Jason Rozaki from Public Access America. Tune in at publicaccessamerica.com, Stitcher, iTunes, or SoundCloud, or check out their YouTube. I do. It's fascinating. Go ahead and subscribe, and you get little moments of history from throughout time. Thanks for being here, Jason. Thanks for having me, Pete. The greatest threat to the European way of life came not from the colonies, but from within Europe itself. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had for decades maintained informal control over border regions in the Balkans, nominally a province of the decaying Turkish Ottoman Empire. In 1905, the Austrian government decided to make its control formal and announced the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina. Anger and fear swept through the capitals of Europe over the impudence of the act. Kaiser Wilhelm was angry that he hadn't been consulted in the matter beforehand, as were the leaders of France and England. Russia, which felt a bond of kinship with the Slavic Serbs, was angry that the action had taken place at all. The threat of war was imminent. With Russian backing, the Serbs prepared to declare war. But the backing would not come. Nicholas, beset by domestic troubles, was sympathetic 
but would not commit to another war so soon after the defeat by Japan. Instead, Serbs formed a militant group called Mlada Bosna, or Young Bosnia, dedicated to disrupting Austrian rule. They used any and all means at their disposal, though they favored bombings and assassinations. The century's first group of terrorist freedom fighters, the Mlada Bosna, would soon drag Europe into a great and calamitous war. The storm clouds of two world wars were gathering over Vienna. On a holiday in 1909, the Austrian emperor, Franz Joseph, paraded his horse through a cheering crowd that included Leon Trotsky, Adolf Hitler, and Joseph Stalin. The trio went entirely unnoticed that day. It was almost as if the young century, patiently awaiting its hour to come, was content to watch the grandeur of the old century pass by. This is where I go to check out the episodes for Public Access America now. You can read descriptions and see videos and even more right here on my phone. What's a phone? A phone is a device that allows you to interact with the rest of the world. And what's a dot com? A dot com is a website that allows other people in the world to put up content that we can check out every day. Like Public Access America dot com. Are you a German spy? Because this sounds like technology. Tell you what, just click on the Best Buy banner on publicaccessamerica.com. There you go. And now you can shop from hundreds of items. Let's get you maybe a phone or a tablet or maybe even a PC so you can check out Public Access America everywhere on iTunes and Stitcher and YouTube and TuneIn Radio and even publicaccessamerica.com. Wow, this is great. Now I'm a German spy just like you, Petey. Oh, don't forget the headphones. What are headphones? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 